Good morning. Aren't they so great at announcements? Yeah. yeah. I am so glad that they are great at it because I'm not, and I don't have to do it anymore. So, if you don't know who I am, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. And again, welcome home. Hey, it pays to have the youth know you. You'll get your $5 later. Um, if you haven't been with us, we've been going through a series called My Heart For. And through the series, we've been looking at different things that God has given to, get different passions that God has given to the teachers of this church. And, and so the first week that we actually had Pastor Bill, our former lead pastor, come in, and he shared with us his heart for peacemaking and how God has called us as the church to be peacemakers. And in the following couple weeks, Pastor David, you saw him earlier, he, he shared with us God's passion that he's given him for, for speaking the truth and, and talking about the future. And then last week, Pastor Manny shared about his heart for mission. And through this series, hopefully you've seen that there's this consistent thing going on that each of us, through our passions, really hope to see this church be shaped around the things that God has made us passionate about. Not because we're passionate about them, but because hopefully our hearts are reflecting the heart of God. And so just over a week ago, we met to discuss spiritual gifts. And so if you missed that class, I, 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 we, we've got some notes for you. I'd love to get to you. But we talked about all these, these different gifts that God has given his church, different things that he's empowered us to do to fulfill the mission he's given us and to build up the body. And, and in that, that talk, we had a lot of great conversation about what those gifts look like and, and, and how we can discover them ourselves. But we didn't have time to discuss our passions because God hasn't just given us spiritual gifts when we get saved, though that's true. He uses our experiences, our hurts, our victories, everything in between to, to give us passions about things that he's passionate about. And he shapes us through our experiences to make us more like him. But if you look at the lives of each of the teachers here, you'll notice that, it, that, that each of our passions connects with something that we've experienced, something that we've gone through, something that we have experienced in our own lives, whether it's when we were in ministry or before ministry, or for Pastor Bill, even after ministry, or at least after paid ministry. We never get to retire from ministry. That's an important clarification. But today, I want to share with you the heart that God has given me for the lost, and when I say lost, I want to define that term because sometimes it can have a negative connotation. When I say lost, I am referring to anyone whom God loves who don't yet follow him. Here's the good news. If you don't follow Jesus, he loves you. So even when we're lost, even when we're lost, God loves us. And last week, we celebrated God's heart for the lost, right? We had baptisms, we had people come forward and, and they, they told the world, this is what Jesus has done in my life. And so each time that we, we, we go into the baptism waters, we're celebrating the fact that God cares about the lost. Whether it's children who grow up in church here and go to Awana, or as people making a deathbed confession, God loves it when lost people are found. God loves it when lost people are found. God loves it when lost people are found. God passionately loves and pursues those who do not yet know him. God pursues them. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He doesn't wait for us to figure it out. God is not a God who stays in heaven and just says, I hope you figure it out. God's the God who comes near, and he did this in the incarnation in Jesus, and he continues to do it through his God loves when the lost are found. Anyone else ever lose things? 
I have the gift of losing things. It's a spiritual gift. That, well, not quite. Um, but I had to train myself so that when I come home, I walk through the door, I give my wife a kiss, I kiss my baby, and then I immediately head to this little thing in our living room where I set my keys and my wallet and my phone because if I don't, I will not remember where I put them. I've spent so much of my life looking for lost things, so much of my life, I'm too much. Even at the church park day a couple weeks ago on a Saturday, I kept leaving my stuff everywhere. And so four different people had to come up to me, hey, Jeff, is this yours? I, I think it is. Um, I have the gift of losing things. But one time, I lost my favorite stuffed animal, and his name is Brownie. Say hi. Say hey, guys. If you look at Brownie, you're like, wow, that guy has been through a lot. He is 29 years old. Um, doesn't look it, though. Still looks like a puppy. Uh, bad joke. Um, so when I got him, I was a baby. I was, I was barely a year old, and I've had him, and my mom got him from a claw machine. She won him in a claw machine and said, here, here you go. Here you go, JJ. And uh, that's my nickname, anyways. Not important. But he, he's not the most exciting or intricate toy ever created, but I've had him for a very, very long time. And he's been with me through so much of life. And I, I remember when I was a kid, like if I got scared or if I was bored, Brownie was there. But when, we, when my family moved from Lake Isabella to Bakersfield, um, we were moving in with some of my aunts and uncles, or aunt and uncle. We were moving into their place, and, and when we moved in, there, there wasn't enough room for all our stuff, so we bought a storage unit, and we placed some stuff like Brownie in it. But when we got to the place, I, I realized that Brownie wasn't there. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jeff, you're in 10th grade, and you're still sleeping with Brownie? No. No, I just like knowing where he is, Okay. <laughs> Don't judge me. I know where he is at all times now. <laughs> but, but at one point in my search for him, I was like, wait a second, he's, he's not with our stuff. I'm going through all my basketball shorts and, my, and all my clothing. and all, I was like, Brownie's not there. Where, where's Brownie? And, and I realized that he was in the storage unit. Well, while I was looking for him, my parents said, oh, no, someone's gone through our storage unit. And then I went, no, not Brownie. He's the most valuable thing in there. Because, of course, you know, when you're going through someone's stuff, you look for their stuffed animals, as, as you do, of course. But, but in my mind, I was sure that something had happened to him, because that's where my brain goes immediately, to the worst possible conclusion. And so I was like, if they grabbed something, he must have been in it. Because to me, Brownie isn't just a stuffed animal, he's the stuffed animal. I held him when I was sick. He, I took him with me all over the place. He was with me when, I, when I'd have a nightmare and wake up in the middle of the night. Growing up in a family of six... I got a lot of hand-me-downs. I had a lot of shirts that were two sizes too big as I was growing up. But this was a stuffed animal that was mine. I had known him all of my entire life. For as far back as I can remember, Brownie was there. But, 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 but I couldn't find him. I didn't know where he was, and so I just started freaking out. And I remember panicking, going, is he there? Is he there? I was counting down the days until we could go and see if he was there. And he was, thankfully, because he's here right now. Yay, Brownie. Um, but, but still, if, if we're honest, each of us have a Brownie, right? So if you go through your storage units, your brains, your boxes, your stuff, if you think back, there's something in your life that to others may not seem valuable. To others, it may seem to have no value whatsoever because they wouldn't pay any. No one would pay 25 cents to take this from me today. But, thank you. Um, 
But, but to most people, he's, 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 he's worthless. But to me, he's invaluable. I would do anything to make sure that he's okay. And so each of us, if we're honest, there's something that we value that other people don't necessarily see the same value in because they don't have the same perspective. But the value of something is not determined by what others will pay for it, but to the one whom it belongs to. It, his value is not determined by what you'd give me for him. I wouldn't take anything except for paying off my student loans. But other than that, <laughs> I would not take anything to pay for him because he's so valuable to me. The value of something is not determined by what others will pay for it, but what it means to the one to whom it belongs. And Jesus teaches us that God sees the lost, the people in this world who do not know him, who do not know his love, they don't know his care. Jesus sees them as invaluable. They're, they're, they're priceless. They're infinitely valuable to God because they belong to him. It doesn't matter what others see or don't see, Jesus loves the lost. What do I mean? Well, if you would look with me in Luke chapter 15, well, well, that's where our scripture will be today. And as you turn there, just to give you some background, Jesus by this point has, has been doing his ministry for a little while. And he's been sharing the good news of what he's going to do, that he is setting free the captive, that he is forgiving sin, that he is causing all the things that are broken in the world to become unbroken. And as he's proclaiming this, he's getting a crowd. But rather than the crowd that most people would have expected, it's kind of the ragtag, the leftovers, the least, the lost. They're these people who the society said, well, I don't know about them. This is the group of people building around Jesus, and this is making the religious elite frustrated, furious, upset. And, and we'll see that in the passage today, that, that they, they're just really mad that Jesus, who's supposed to be the Messiah, they're like, okay, this isn't what the Messiah is supposed to be like. The Messiah is supposed to, to care about us. Why is he spending so much time with these people? Well, let's look at what Jesus has to say about that in Luke 15. It says this, The tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call on her neighbors, her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. So we see here the Pharisees are getting angry because Jesus is hanging out with notorious sinners. What does that even mean, notorious sinners? What it means is that these people's sins were obvious. These are the kind of people where everyone knew their history. It, it would be like someone who had all their bad news posted on their Instagram or Facebook. The, the, these are the people that everyone knew what they were doing and everyone disapproved of it. And, and so the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they're furious. They're murmuring. They're, they're complaining. Why is Jesus, Jesus says he's the Messiah. He says he's this one who's coming to deliver Israel. Why is he spending time with sinners? And not just any sinners, but the worst kinds of sinners in their mind. 
You see, it was the regular practice of the people in Jesus' day to pray something along, this, along the lines of this prayer. Uh, the, the Pharisees prayed something like this. This was found in the Babylonian Talmud. The Talmud was the teachings of the people of the day. And, and, and I just want you to take this in. They said, I thank you, Lord my God, that you have set my portion with those who sit in the sanctuary and not with those who sit on street corners. I rise early and they rise early. I rise to attend to the word of Torah or the Old Testament and they to attend to futile things. I exert myself and they exert themselves. I exert myself and receive a reward. They exert themselves and receive no reward. I run and they run. I run to life and the world to come and they run to the pit of destruction. This is the prayer of the self-righteous, right? They they thought they had it all figured out. They they, they thought, okay, we know God's law. These people aren't living up to God's law. So so their rightful end is destruction is what they perceived. And, And here's the thing. Even if that's true, even if, even if their perspective was correct, the way they respond is completely contrary to the God we see in the Bible. That rather than seeing these people in need of salvation, in need of forgiveness, in need of life change, they saw them as people headed to their just ends. The Pharisees wanted the destruction of those far from God. So Jesus responds, and he tells them three stories, three parables, and each of them illustrates the point that Jesus wants to make to these Pharisees. Let's look at the first parable. The first parable is often called the parable of the lost sheep. And and, and the reason why is because in this parable, there's 100 sheep and one of them is lost. And and it wanders away. So the shepherd leaves the 99 in the wilderness, right? He leaves them there and he goes after the one that's wandered away. And, And so when he finds him, he puts him on his shoulders and takes him home and he celebrates. He gets all of his neighbors together, all of his friends and says, let's celebrate this, this sheep is found. Well, there's a, a couple of understandings of how to interpret this story. And, and one of the, the, the main ones is this, is that, okay, yeah, livestock in the first century is so valuable that even if one wandered away, you have to go get it because it's just so important. It's just so important to their economy and to their being able to feed their family. You gotta go after the sheep. That's one per- possible perspective. I'm of a different perspective. That, of course, livestock was so valuable. Livestock was so valuable that if you had 99 of them, you can't leave them behind for the one. So, so Jesus' story makes no sense to the hearers. And Jesus often did this. Parables are often start with a story that people understand and ends with an ending no one could have expected. Jesus' parables are counterintuitive. They go against the grain of the way people thought. And so Jesus says there's 99 good sheep and the good shepherd goes after the one lost and leaves the other in the wilderness. But think about it this way. Who of you having $100 if you lose one will risk the 99 for that one? Or let me put it this way. You have 99% of your wealth is fine, but 1% goes away. Who here would risk their 99% of their wealth for that 1%? Maybe a gambling person. Maybe if you're feeling lucky that day, right? (laughs) But a wise person cuts their losses and is glad to have 99% left over. This is why it surprises the hearers. Jesus said, said that the good shepherd goes after the one and leaves the 99 behind. And heaven rejoices more over the one that is found than the 99 that stayed behind. The same idea is communicated in the next story. A woman loses one of her 10 coins. So it's maybe a little bit more higher percentage, right, with things she owns. And then she spends all night trying to find it. Well, if you think about it, in this culture, you would often work from sun up to sun down. 
that you'd go home, you eat, eat a little something, go to sleep, and try and get the energy for the next day. But this woman loses one-tenth of all that she owns and spends all night that she could have been resting to find just one coin. She, she spends all of her energy, and she turns her house upside down looking for the one coin that was lost. Again, the trade-off doesn't seem worth it, especially when the fact that the celebration probably costs more than the one coin. She invites her neighbors in and says, okay, let's celebrate, but that celebration is more expensive than the coin is worth. Only when something is of infinite value would you be willing to celebrate above its cost. Only when something is of infinite value would you be willing to celebrate above its cost. Jesus says heaven celebrates over the infinite value of people turning to him even though it costs Jesus everything. Even though it costs Jesus everything. And Jesus has two primary goals here with these stories. He says, the first primary goal is this, is that people should be shocked to see that their perceived value is way off of Jesus' real value. That, that, that what they perceive lost people as, these people perceive lost people as worthless, or at least not worth their time. They see people as lost causes. They see people as not worthy of all the effort and energy that Jesus is putting out. But Jesus is saying, you got it wrong. They thought that these people weren't worth the Messiah's time, but Jesus was showing them through his actions and through his words that they were infinitely valuable to God. That people far from God are not lost causes or unworthy of the time of Jesus. Instead, Jesus shows that they are of infinite value. In Luke 19, it tells the story of Zacchaeus. And Jesus visits Zacchaeus. And if you guys know the story, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, right? I don't know the rest of the story. I didn't grow up in church. But you get the point. Jesus was a ta- or Zacchaeus was a tax collector, right? And tax collectors were the worst kind of sinners because they stole from their people and kept a little bit and gave it to Rome. And that was like treason to the people of that time period. They're like, this is the worst. And Zacchaeus has been doing it, and he's really good at it. He may have been doing it for decades. He's so successful at this, and Rome just loves him. And so when Jesus comes near to him, the Pharisees are upset. Like, why would you come to this wicked man who's been robbing people for decades? And what happens when someone who is far from God and when God draws near, change happens. Jesus saves this person. Jesus changes Zacchaeus' life. Zacchaeus repents and gives away way more than he took, right? He takes all the wealth that he had accumulated through sin and gives it away because he believes Jesus is worth more. And so when this person who's, who's a lost cause to religious elite, when he encounters Jesus, Jesus changes his life. For, and Jesus says this, for the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus goes, you want to know what my mission's about? You want to know why I'm here? You want to know what this ministry is all about? You guys want to summarize in one sentence, why did Jesus come? The Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. He came to seek and save those who are lost. Jesus came to seek out those far from God. I find it very ironic. I was talking to my dad a little bit about this earlier this week about my sermon, and, and he pointed out something to me that's just so, it's just stuck with me, it's so poignant. Jesus is the only human being who has any right to judge anyone's sin, but he never did. Jesus is the only one on earth who's had any right to judge any sin ever, and he didn't, right? Instead, he invites them to come and know him. Jesus came to save those far from God, not to condemn them or to bring judgment on them, but to save them. The Pharisees would spend years and years to memorize the scriptures. Many of them would memorize whole books of the Old Testament. Yet in all their study and understanding of the law, they missed God. 
they miss the heart of God. And this is evidenced by devaluing those God loves. They saw people as lost causes, but God saw them as the lost he loves. And even worse, and this is the second point of these parables, is that they missed the celebration of what Jesus was doing. You see, the Pharisees had been waiting centuries and centuries for God to send the Messiah. They had been praying for decades and decades for God to send someone to rescue them. And when Jesus finally comes, instead of celebrating with him, they judged him. Jesus is a fulfillment of all the promises that God had given the people of Israel, but they missed it. And instead of celebrating this fulfillment and the work that Jesus had done to seek those who had wandered away from God, they set themselves in judgment over God. They set themselves in judgment over God because they said, these people do not deserve forgiveness. But before we jump to judge them, are there people we deem too far from God? Are there people who we think are a lost cause? Are, are, we, are there people that you're like, but, but Jeff, you don't know their story. Jeff, you don't know what they've done to me. Jeff, you don't understand. Yeah, but, but, but. The Pharisees had a lot. The Pharisees had a lot of objections as well. Are there people we deem as other than and outside of God's love? Or are we guilty of not celebrating the change that God is bringing? If the person who has hurt you most or the person that you can't stand the least were to be changed by Jesus' love, would you celebrate or would you be angry? Would we be more happy or upset if God saved those we find hard to love? There are a couple of reasons why this is close to my heart. The first reason is I was once a lost person. And I mean, if you're a Christian, you have to admit that you were too. That's all of our stories, right? And I've shared my story a number of times, but just to sum it up, there was a point in my life where I didn't understand God. I had no clue that he existed or that he loved me, but the genuine love and care of a local church changed my life forever. And it led to me coming to know Jesus. I was lost, but Jesus found me through his local church. It was their love for people like me who were lost that brought me to knowing the, the love of God for me. Sometimes when we've been walking with God for so long, we forget what it's like to be lost. Sometimes when we've been found for so long, we forget what it feels like to be on the outside. And it's not even just that all people think that they're lost. They're just, it's not even that they're aware that they're lost. It's not even that they're aware that there's something missing in their life. I know that when I, when I was younger, I didn't think there was something missing until I encountered the immeasurable love and grace of God. But no one else knows until we tell them. But the second reason why this is close to me is I've, I've been in, in paid ministry. This will be my 10th year of paid ministry. And in the decade that I've been serving, I've seen a lot of people hurt by churches. Churches that are supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus. And one of the most famous quotes about this problem is by Brennan Manning. He says it this way, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips, but then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And that is why when I first headed off to study theology, when I first headed off to read the Bible, to understand it better, to, to study to be a pastor, my, my main passion and goal was to plant a church for people who are lost, people who are far from God, because I believe that there are still people that God wants to save, and he still wants to use us to do it. And I believe that there are people who are far from God, and God wants to use us 
to save them. He wants to use us to reach them. He wants to use our love and our money and our time and our ability and our passion to reach those who still don't know. Because there are people who still think that the church is a lot like the Pharisees and not like Jesus. They think that the church is about judging people and not extending love. Friends, may this never be true of us. But, have we loved people well enough that they know that? Or do we just hope that they put it together? Do we love people well enough that they know that we're not the Christians who want to judge them but want to reach them for Jesus? Or do we just hope that they'll figure it out on their own? Because if we look at the life of Jesus, Jesus doesn't wait for people to come to him. He goes to them. Jesus is the God who comes near, right? When people are far from God, God draws near. And this is one of the chief complaints by the Pharisees about him, that he eats and fellowships with sinners and tax collectors. God comes near when people are far away. And he demonstrates his compassion toward them that even as he disagreed with their decisions, Jesus didn't affirm everything they did. Jesus isn't just some sentimental God who just is okay with everything we do. That's not what he's like. Still, he proclaimed the love of God that overcame their sin. Jesus wasn't as worried with the penalty of sin in their life as he was with giving them true life that the true life that he wants to give them was overflowing and abundant and better than anything that they could have ever imagined. If we as a church are ever to have credibility to reach those who are still lost, then we must begin to look and love and live like Jesus. The word loss, again, I know it can be a hang-up for some, but, but there's, some, there's some reason for why I keep using that word, and, and the implications are in this story. If something is lost, it implies that it can be found and that it belongs to someone. And Jesus says that he came to seek and so save those who, are, who can be found and belong to him. When I was looking for Brownie, I would do anything. When I was looking for him, I would have gone anywhere. I would have, you know, in my 10th grade mind, I would have done anything for him. Because I hoped that one day Elizabeth would be able to have him. But Jesus didn't just do anything for those who are lost. Jesus didn't just send a messenger to tell us about God's love. Jesus came and he died. Right? We sing in that song, how deep the Father's love for us. Right? His, his son dying for us just demonstrate his love for us. That Jesus take, took on the penalty himself rather than letting us face it. So how can we as a church begin to have a greater heart for the lost? How can we share in our Father's heart for the world for which he so loves? Well, Paul gives us some helpful tips in Colossians chapter 4, and hopefully they'll help us summarize what I think can help us take steps towards being people with a heart for the lost. And it's found in verses 5 through 6, and it says this. It should be on the screen. Live wisely among those who are not believers, and make the most of every opportunity let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So three, three quick steps that we can take to help us to be people with a heart for the lost to reach the lost. And that's live wisely, seize opportunities, and speak graciously. The first is this, we need to live wisely. Our walk needs to match our talk. 
if we say Jesus is risen and, and king of everything, if he's the, the ruler of our hearts, then our walk needs to match our talk. In, in the Greek, there's a word tra- that we translate walk, but it, it says peripateo. And so that it literally means to lifestyle. It means that we are called to lifestyle wisely. We're called to live in such a way that wisdom is the definition of how we act and, and, and we act towards those who are outside. But that means that we cannot share the love of God for those far from him, but not deny that love in our actions towards them. Let me say that again. We cannot share the love of God towards those outside, but deny that love in the way we act toward them. I've said it before, but jerks for Jesus is a terrible outreach strategy. If we say Jesus saves us from the penalty of sin and also the power of sin, then that means we should be able to love those around us. We should be the kinds of people that love everyone we encounter just as Jesus did, right? The lost and the people who came coming to Jesus, they kept coming to Jesus was because of his love for them, right? They're like, this man has the words of eternal life. This man speaks and and, and everything is different for me. Do we do the same? And this isn't a calling about perfection. None of us are gonna be perfect. That's one of our truths about us, right? We, we, We still sin, still It's not calling to perfection. It's a calling to reflection. Reflecting what Jesus has done may look like owning up to your failures. You're like, wait, what do you mean? Well, there's something about us saying, oh, everyone sins, and Jesus saved us from our sins, and owning up to our mistakes that gives our message credibility, right? Because if we say Jesus saved us from sin, but we never confess or never admit when we're at fault, then, then, then do we really believe what we're actually saying? To be Christ-like as an imperfect human isn't to be a fake perfection, but to let the good news so change you that you're willing to even own up to your mistakes. To be a Christian at all means to admit that you're imperfect, that there's only one who is perfect, and that's Jesus, right? So admitting our faults is to agree with our faith. And what does that have to do with living wisely? Well, well think about it this way. If you realize that you're not perfect and you interact with people who are imperfect, it changes the, the whole atmosphere of your relationship. Because if, if you continually act like you've got it all together around people who know they don't have it together, you're not giving them anything that they would look forward to or want themselves. They're like, that person's too far, or they'll just recognize that you're faking it. To live wisely towards outsiders is to recognize that, that our message must match our living. And living wisely leads to opportunities which leads to our audience, right? Jesus is the only one who's perfect. He's the only one who can draw a crowd based off of his perfection. All the rest of us do it through reflection. And so we need to live wisely so that we can seize our opportunities, which means that we need to be aware of them and go for them. No one placed in your path is there accidentally. Do you have a boss, a coworker, a neighbor, a relative, or someone you continually interact with? Then God has called you to share the love of God with them. God has called you to be the witness of his love to them. And and he's calling you to seize the opportunity. It is a calling for each of us to love and share the good news that God loves those far from him. And when God draws near today through us, God draws near to the lost today through us, through the spirit working in us and through us. So let us make the most of our opportunities. Now it's not our job to save them or convince them of anything, but just to present the love that God has for them and the truth of what Jesus has done. The Spirit will do the saving. We just do the sharing. The Spirit will do the saving. We just do the sharing. But how do we do that? 
by speaking graciously. And Paul says attractively so that we can respond rightly. And, and it's, it's the flip side of our walk matching our talk. If our words are not gracious toward others, then they're not going to believe our message. Right? Jesus came and, 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 and lost people loved him. Do our words match that same reality? Because if, if we share the good news in a way that doesn't make sense or isn't kind or isn't gracious, then, then, then there's nothing for them to accept. There's nothing for them to trust. Communication isn't about just what you mean. It's about what other people hear. And if you've, if you've been in any kind of friendship or marriage or anything, you find that out real fast. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, relationships are built on recognizing that there's things that we don't always understand together. We, communication isn't just what you, excuse me, isn't just what you mean. It's about what others hear. This is why Paul says we must speak graciously and attractively so we can respond rightly. It's not about a sales pitch. It's not about having every word right all the time, but it is thinking about how the other person hears what you say and not just what you intend to say. This is so important. Pastor David said it like this a few weeks ago, that even if we share the truth, if there's no love, it's not the good news. If we share the truth without love, it's not good news. And again, I'm not appealing to sentimentalism. I'm merely urging you to love people enough to care what they hear when you speak. Jesus said his mission was to seek and save the lost. And even though the religious leaders of his day didn't see the value in those he was reaching, God has a heart for the lost, the people who do not yet know him and his love for them. And this heart, as we live as Jesus did. But until we begin to live into that same calling, living wisely, seizing opportunities, and speaking graciously, the world around us will continue to think of God as either being disinterested non-existent or worse, malevolent. Until we begin to share the good news in a way that other people understand by our walk matching our talk, by us taking advantage of the opportunities that God gives us and speaking graciously as he would, the world will never understand what God is like. The last parable that uh, Jesus shares in, in Luke 15 is often called the prodigal son, but I think a more correct t title would be the lost son. And if I could peel back the, the metaphor a little bit, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there are people created in God's image. They've been given this infinitely valuable inheritance of being made in God's image. And they take it and they squander it. And they squander it away on things in this life that don't fulfill. That they try and pursue every other possible end for their life. And when they begin to recognize the bankruptcy of the way that they've been living, when they begin to realize that the way that they've been living doesn't really add up or give them fulfillment, they recognize their need for God. And they start to head back to God. Only their expectation is to meet the God of the Pharisees. They're expecting to, to come to God and beg him, if you could just give me a sliver of being a slave in your house, that would be enough. Their expectation is that God's just barely gonna let them in to be a slave, and that if God would save them, it would just barely be because he let them, maybe. But I've got good news for you, friends. God is not the God of the harsh and judgmental religious elite. No, God does the only thing no one could think of. He does the unthinkable thing. He does the reckless thing. Instead of him waiting for them to figure out their life and get it all together, instead of waiting for them to come to him and figure it out and clean it off, Jesus goes running after them. Jesus comes to us, and he dies on a cross, showing us that he loves us.
and he's willing to pay any price to show it. He's willing to do anything to show it. The Pharisees missed who God was because they missed who God, they missed God's heart. They misunderstood God's heart. What God does your faith reveal today? Is it the God who loves and runs after the lost? The God we see in Jesus who loves and pursues, who will, who will spare no expense to rescue those he loves? Is that what your faith reveals? Or does your faith reveal a God who's exclusive and you have to be good enough to get in with him? Does your, God, does a faith, does your faith reveal a God where someone's past can be too checkered? I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to close with a song. And, and in this song, it has a line that has been commonly misunderstood. It, it says this in the chorus. It says, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. And, and some people have some pause with that line. It, they miss the point because, because they say, God is sovereign. God is all-knowing. God is perfect. To which I say, Amen. Absolutely, He is. God isn't reckless. Amen. But His love sure feels like it when you're the lost when we recognize that we're the one that Jesus leaves the 99 behind for, when we recognize that it's, it doesn't make sense on paper, it doesn't add up, who in their right mind would trade 99% for the 1%? It sure feels reckless. God loves those who run from him and pursues them with his love. Instead of having a point where God will stop loving us, or that we can outrun or outsend his grace. He continues to urge and call us to himself. There's another song. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And there's an update that someone, Preston Sprinkle, he's a modern biblical scholar. He says it like this. We, we are prone to wander, but God is prone to chase. But good news, friends, He's faster. Yeah. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize that we've done nothing to earn your love. But the good news is we can never do anything to lose it either. That by your grace in Jesus, you reveal that you are the God who chases us down. Not to judge us, but to love us, to show that you've always loved us. And it's only when we start to look at the narrative around us or we start to judge ourselves by your law and not see your love and grace that we begin to believe those lies. So this morning, God, if we are walking with you, if we are already a follower of you, God, would you remind us of the truth this morning, that you love us, that you're not done with us, that you're not tired of us, that you forgive as many times as we repent, that your grace never runs out. But Lord, maybe we're here today and we don't even know you. And, and maybe we're tempted, we're tempted this morning to say, that sounds too good. But that's the reality of the good news, God, is that it is too good to believe. But once we believe, we can see how good it really is. So this morning, God, for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, I just pray that you would draw them to yourself. But Lord, for all of us who have called you our Lord, who, who call on your name, who say that we're a Christian this morning, God, would you give us a heart like yours that loves those far from you?
and draws near to them so that we can show you, show, show the world what you are like in the way that we love, in the way that we speak, in the way that we act. God, you're so good. We praise you for that this morning. We're so thankful for who you are, that you're better than we could have ever imagined. So we praise you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.